You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Good day, friends and your excellencies. Uh, we have moved to the second part of this uh, wonderful platform, and it's my pleasure on behalf of the organizers to say welcome to you. I think in part of Africa they say Caribou. Caribou and Caribou indeed. Um, the purpose of our being here has been so specified and discussed in the early part. And I think there's a sense in which we can say the purpose is met. Now, we have opportunity to look at uh, one critical sector and see how the reform is either playing out or is likely to play out. From what we listened to in the early part, why the globe, the world, is experiencing decline in multilateralism, there's a sense in which we can also associate uh, with some of the claims made in the early part that Africa is experiencing a resurgence of commitment to multilateralism and regional integration, aided by reform efforts. This part of the program is of a special importance to us in uh, several dimensions, universal and specific. Specific in the sense that uh, cooperation between Africa and Europe in the area of peace and security has witnessed a lot of boost in the past one decade. The EU continues to be one of the major supports for peace and security facility through the African Union. Uh, what are the issues? Africa continues to scale up its commitment to the use and deployment of regional schemes to promote peace in Africa. But there are challenges. Some have identified dependence on external funding. But this morning again, we've seen that it's more than dependence on donors also issue of uh, promoting budget efficiency and sustainability. Like I said, the panel, after listening to one of uh, our specially invited guests, will look into some of these areas in details and come up with uh, opinion that we can take beyond this hall. Again, it's my pleasure to specially welcome uh, one of our songs in Africa that has demonstrated that there is hope and possibility for a good Africa. Um, the CV and the resume is a very long one, and I may not be able to summarize this in any way. Uh, Dr. Donald Kaveroka uh, is the, uh, I think, highest special representative <laughs> on the Africa Peace Fund, but also of importance, the chairman of the AU Advisory Committee on the Reform. Uh, before now, we are all aware uh, of your impressive record as the president, chief executive of African Development Bank, and so many other of these. 
We are happy to have you here. And uh, our time is well spent. And I do not intend to preempt your lecture, your intervention. But on behalf of the organizer, I want to welcome you to the platform as you take us through uh, some of the issues from your perspective and what you have found in your workings within and outside the African Union that will help uh, whet our appetites and long for solution to the challenges of financing African Union peace, security, and architect. And after that, my other colleagues on the panel uh, will also make their intervention. Your Excellency, you are welcome. Yes, Yes, sorry, go ahead. So I was saying that I'm sorry for disrupting your program, but in short, my passport was stuck at a European embassy. I had applied for a visa, and I had to prove that I actually intend to return back to my country. I had to prove that I have enough means and... But I'm saying this not because of this little inconvenience to an individual. I think that it's a reflection of the challenges we're going through. But that's not my subject for, for today. I hope you invite me for another time when we can uh, discuss these matters much more fundamentally. I don't have that time uh, today. Uh, I belong to a small group set up by people called the Friends of Europe. And we are trying not to supplant the current conversation between Europe and African countries but to try to give it additional thoughts, a parallel on the side, to try and step away from the issues of the day, from the, the media, from the migrants, from the of the numbers, to step back and look forward between Europe and Africa in the next 30, 40, 50 years. Would we, neighbors, separated by nine miles of water, how do we intend to live with each other in a win-win situation? Anyway, so that is me explaining why I came late. Now, Christina has already explained everything about AU. Thank you, Christina, for doing that. Uh, Christina is an able member of this team. I have no intention of uh, repeating what she said. I just have uh, three things I want to do today in 
I'm, how much time? How much time? Okay, I'll do less than that. So, the African Union, a successor to the Organization of African Unity, was born out of a compromise. And I will explain what that compromise was. The Organization of African Unity was an immense success. Whatever its deficiencies, whatever its uh, weaknesses, it delivered the liberation of the continent. Some countries were far ahead of others, but that liberation was delivered. And in 1994, with President Mandela assuming the leadership of South Africa, that process was complete. The process of liberation was complete. And <clears throat> the leadership of the Organization of African Unity. People like to criticize OAU, but for me, it achieved that historical mission. So now leaders have to think forward, so what is the next step? And you think about the next step, there were two strands of thought. There were those who thought we should go straight to a United States of Africa. Uh, a debate which, by the way, was also there in the 60s. We have no time to waste. Let us move quickly to the United States of Africa. There are others who said, yes, that is a good destination, but getting there requires a lot of things to be done. The debate went on for about two years, and uh, by 2002, that debate produced what we have now is African Union, a compromise between these two schools of thought, each one of which has got its own strengths and weaknesses. But it was also an AU born with a lot of ambition, huge ambitions. And partly this is what we need to resolve now, because the AU is born very much resembled its sister organization, the European Union. Now, even the structures, you could see a lot of similarities. Now, I'm not an expert on the challenges we're having in the European Union. I will leave that to you. But at least here in the European Union, there's something which you have, which in the AU we don't have. That is the Treaty of Lisbon, where individual countries have handed over some of their sovereign powers to Brussels. Now, that may be a good or bad thing. You, you're having arguments among yourself, but you have it. The African Union does not have the equivalent of the Treaty of Lisbon. It is still an intergovernmental organization, an organization of sovereign states who have not ceded any of their powers to Addis Ababa. It's very important to understand that when people criticize the African Union, it works under those constraints. It works under consensus. It looks for a large part of an agreement. But it had ambitions, both economic, social, and political. The second thing I want to say, and then I'll move on, because Christina, I think you have done a good job there, is that it had these ambitions, but without the means. Without the means to carry forward ambitions. Now at the beginning, uh, five countries who are the largest economies in Africa decided as an act of political solidarity to assume the large burden 
of funding the organization. So these countries were South Africa, Nigeria, uh, Egypt, Libya, and Algeria. They were funding about 56% of the budget of the organization by their own choice as an act of solidarity. And so it worked very well until then events in North Africa. And when events in North Africa happened, especially the destruction of Libya, it was obvious that other countries have to step forward and fill this gap. So the next level of countries came up. They have recourse to Kenya, Ethiopia, uh, the next size of the economies. But as Christina will have explained, uh, this was a template arrangement where to figure out a longer-term arrangement, which I think she has explained. I'll not go there. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because there was another problem. The African Union decided to take on a larger role on matters of peace and security on the continent. Why? A, because it's important for us. But two, because over time, the international instruments for keeping peace and security in the world has developed in 1945 and improved over time under Butos Gali, under Kofi Annan, and other people. There are all these arguments. We still have a huge gap between the security challenges of today and the instruments which exist to keep the peace in the world. So let me give an extreme example, an extreme example, but there are others in between. Somalia. So the state of Somalia <coughs> uh, fails. There is a crisis with huge neighborhood effects on the other countries, with a huge impact on its own people. But the United Nations, under the current arrangements, cannot deploy peacekeepers in that kind of theater. It is not empowered to do so for four reasons, which diplomats here know better than I. The doctrine of peacekeeping has its key principles. Number one, there has to be minimal use of force, except in self-defense. You can't send peacekeepers to fight with Al-Shabaab. That would be minimal use of force. There have been some variations of it uh, in between, some improvement, but the principle is still there. Principle number two. The forces have to be neutral. So between Al-Shabaab and the citizens of Somalia, the forces have to be neutral. Now, Ambassador of Rwanda is here, so she can talk better than I on, on that issue. Uh, so this is what happened in Rwanda, for example. You have got militias killing civilians, and United Nations peacekeepers failing to intervene failing to intervene, because when General Dalai requested for the mandate from New York, he was not given the mandate, even though he had the instrument. That is the second weakness of the international architecture. All right? The third, there is a country, a state must invite you. You, you can't invade a country. So in the case where the state has broken down like Somalia, so who invites you? or in the case of a regional 
Christ Lake Gov 9 Northern in Lake Chad area. Who invites you? There was another principle which has since been violated, I think, that the large powers, the top five members of the Security Council, don't participate in peacekeeping operations, at least not as peacekeepers. Now, I think that has been modified somehow. But anyhow, so the African Union, recognizing there was this gap, decided to step in to fill the gap. So, incentive force in Somalia, I'm sorry. It is done in many other places. But here's the problem. <clears throat> they have the will, they have the will to fight the terrorists. They cannot be neutral between protecting citizens and their Shabaab. All right? They have been deployed by the Afghan Union, but they don't have the means. So uh, the way it worked was that each time there was a crisis, uh, the Afghan Union has to meet, and then request for donors, please come in and assist. Those arrangements were okay, but they were ad hoc and voluntary. In the case of Somalia, the cooperation has been very strong with the European Union, for example. They're the ones who have provided the bulk of the funding. A bit of money from the UN, but from a trust fund in the UN, and even then on a voluntary basis. And so it becomes, I'm sure as Christina would have said, unsustainable and extremely difficult to support missions like that. So there have been others, Central African Republic, Mali, and so on. So typically, apart from Somalia, the AU would find little means of its own deploy as a first responder, stabilize the situation, in the meantime negotiate with some donors to try and find some money, and in due course, in a few months, they will then transfer the responsibility to the UN. This is what has happened. And this is what is still happening now. So what the leaders decided to do was to say, wait a minute, um, we need to do two things. Number one, we need to set up our own peace fund. We need to take responsibility for our own funding. But we don't have the means now, but over five years' time, they gave themselves a target up to 2022, I think, 2022, to build a fund which would be around $400 million. And I'll explain what the fund is supposed to be. We're on the way, by the way. We're on the way. At these targets for year one have been met. You know, targets for year two, three, four, and five. And the trust uh, board of trustees will be meeting at this at initial meeting on the 16th of uh, of this month. And the instruments are being put in place. I'll explain. But there was second side uh, it. The leaders decided, in any case, the international responsibility keeping peace in the world belongs to the United Nations. And we are members of the United Nations. We're not asking the international community to deploy men and women, but at least the African forces, which deploy, that's it, should have access to the UN assessed contributions. But typically the UN would have roughly, I don't know the numbers, 
anything close to $7 billion a year for, for peacekeeping operations. So the idea was, is there a way in which these forces in Somalia, in Mali, in uh, Central African Republic can access some of that money? Then we had the support of President Obama, uh, who came in strongly in support of this. So I was appointed as a special envoy for, on these issues, A, to help set up the fund. We have set up the fund. Uh, we're hoping that by 2022, about $400 billion. We're working with many countries, including the P5, including Sweden, to try and get this resolution the Security Council. It is moving on, it's very slow. Uh, there have been a lot of discussions. Some big powers have issues, uh, which are geostrategic in nature. Others have doctrinal issues, uh, including, okay, so uh, the UN is going to become an ATM. The AU will meet in Addis, uh, decide there was a crisis in, uh, I don't know, in the Gambia, deploy, and then tell us to pay. Who have I to explain? There have been issues like, okay, suppose we provide the money. How do we know that humanitarian, international humanitarian law will be respected? As if in the UN peacekeeping missions that don't have those issues. Who have I to explain? We have to work on these things together. There have been issues of what is the precedent for other parts of the world? What does it mean? And we have had to explain all these issues. Now, the new American administration is not as keen. Uh, they are reluctant. They have not said no. So they'll be meeting again in December to see if an enabling resolution can be made for that to happen. So that is the second bit of uh, for example, there's a crisis now in Mali, now it, it is funded. Uh, European Union comes in, individual countries, uh, uh, like in GFAB Sahel, for example, even individual countries, my own country has put a bit of money. This is very ad hoc, not sustainable. And this peace fund is supposed to fill the gap, but the gap has to be completed by access to the UN contribution. So let me conclude in three minutes by telling you how the Peace Fund is structured, what it's meant to do. Peacekeeping is a very expensive proposition and often not very effective. If you want to prove, uh, I'm a Rwandan, so I should be careful that I say ambassador. We have a big neighbor uh, where I come from, where they've had a UN peacekeeping mission for the last. Uh, how many years? Probably maybe over a decade. All right? Not sure what they have achieved. Not sure what they have achieved, but the effectiveness of this mission itself is to, to be discussed. By now, it should always be the last option. What the Peace Fund tries to do, it has three windows. Window number one is preventive diplomacy deal with the conflicts very early on before they become a huge problem. Mediators, uh, diplomats, uh, wise men, and all this, and women, of course. So the first window is supposed to prevent things happening. For me, it is probably the most important part of the fund. The second part of the fund 
is about readiness. Because if you're going to intervene in a theater quickly without waiting for three, four months, uh, you have to have some readiness internally, uh, both at the logistical level and uh, at levels of institution and so on. So the second one is to have readiness all the time in case there's a problem. And then there is a third window, which is meant to be as first responder. So there's a crisis, AU moves in with its capabilities, and then waiting for the UN, this formula we're discussing, to come in to support what the uh, AU has done. So the, the Peace Fund has uh, a board of trustees. You have people there, I don't want to mention the names, but names, once it is uh, announced, you see the names you can recognize from the business world, civil society, <coughs> governments, People meant to assure uh, contributors that this is a very serious fund. There will be an independent fund manager, and on the board of trustees, there will be two seats for partners. Uh, so the EU, UN, other countries, among themselves, they will decide who should sit on this board of trustees. So it will be uh, launched on 16th of this month uh, during the extraordinary assembly of the AU. As I said, the goals for year one have been met, because the idea was to do it step by step over five years, such that by 2022, I've got $5 million, which will then replenish as need be. We don't have to raise $100 million every year. I think it is an important breakthrough for, for the AU. From the viewpoint of ownership, I think it is also a breakthrough for uh, members of the UN but the, the system we have had of how peacekeeping is done is no longer effective. Everybody agrees. But I think we need to jump to the next bridge of what do we do. So the former president of uh, Timor-Leste, uh, I think Ramos Horta, chaired a commission put in place by Kofiana to try to answer this question. They gave a report called the HIPPO report, which I want to recommend to you. Because the HIPPO report, what it recommends, is exactly what we are trying to do. So thank you for listening, and I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I apologize. Okay, yeah, great, that's fine. Uh, thank you once again for that uh, very deep, even though brief, uh, excursion into the African Peace Fund. I think before now, a lot of us had, had assumed that uh, it's all about being a financial platform. But uh, this presentation uh, has helped us to see that there is more to each than just being a financial arrangement. Again, you have uh, underscored the importance of preventive diplomacy. Uh, and of course, of interest is the focus on some of the challenges and contradictions even in the global context that may provide opportunity or even make things a little bit. I will not preempt the responses here. I would rather call on my other colleagues to make their short intervention, then we'll come back to you. Uh, if you 
I will call on uh, Hedy. Have five minutes. Good morning, colleagues. Um, I want to say thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity. I'm honored to be here. All protocols observed. Um, I speak to you today um, not as an insider of the AU, but as an academic. And I have very little time, so I'm going to share a few comments and insights with regard to, to uh, gender and the integration of gender in the uh, African peace and security architecture. I think today is quite significant because, um, as far as I know, there's an open session on women, peace and security in the Security Council today on Resolution 1325. So we're actually celebrating the 18th birthday of Resolution 1325 that recognizes the differential impact of conflict on women and men, as well as the important role that women plays in peace building and many of these security issues. So I want to share a few of the pointers um, in terms of the progress. And I think we can also recognize and acknowledge that um, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, Resolution 1325 to be specific, has had very strong roots in Africa. To give you one example, in the year 2000, Namibia was actually chairing uh, the Security Council and actually helped to push through Resolution 1325. So what does it look like on the continent? I think that the picture is very much mixed. On the one hand, we can celebrate a lot of normative um, evolution and progress, and we can maybe even talk about an emerging gender equality regime, but I'm also cautious about that. But there are major challenges at the continental, the sub-regional, as well as the national level in terms of implementation. In 2010, there was a study conducted by, um, I think, the African Union Commission, um, and the idea was or the, it was the Department of Peace and Security, rather. And one of the findings was that gender was treated like an add-on. It wasn't properly integrated. So the issue of mainstreaming became a high priority. But of course, the mainstreaming of gender is hampered by the overall problems in terms of the AU structure and the fact that the peace builders, the development specialists, the politicians all operate in their own little, little silos. But on the positive side, I think there are many um, documents and protocols and declarations. I don't have time to mention all of them, but we know about the Maputo Protocol, the AU, um, the AU um, gender policy, um, and so forth. But I think what, what I find interesting is that there is almost a moratorium now on new policy frameworks because the priority is implementation. So I want to just very briefly talk about two or three examples. The one is a very positive development, the appointment of the special envoy for women, peace and security, Madame Veneta Diop. And I think her role is fundamentally to actually bridge this gap between the rhetoric and the policy and the issues on the ground. And what is encouraging is that we see um, the, the, the language changing continental results framework. I also saw that in the new national action plan for Rwanda. And then also that countries agree to keep a gender scorecard. So in terms of 
accountability and transparency, this is a very positive development. But on the downside, we also need to look critically at the kinds of activities conducted. As commendable as they are, they are high-level and networking um, and solidarity missions. But we have to be careful that we, we need to understand what the qualitative impact of those interventions are. And for this, I think we probably need more research or we need empirical evidence of um, how these interventions actually bridge the gap. The same can also be said of national action plans um, devised in order to implement Resolution 1325. Currently, I think that there are 24 African countries who have now national action plans. But in terms of finance, overall, globally, I think it's only 22% of these national action plans that have allocated budgets. So clearly, if you have this beautiful plan with all these indicators, but how do you translate it to the, uh, to the ground level if you do not have funding? This is the main issue. I would also recommend that in this case, one should look at um, focusing on prevention, as you um, indicated, rather than trying to solve the problem when it's happened. Um, a similar problem is um, emerging in the Gender, Peace and Security program, that it's measurable outcomes of workshops and trainings and conferences. There are good interventions, but again, do they really change the lives of the women and the men on the ground? I also just want to mention a few things about representation. Here, I think that the picture is positive. Um, the former chairperson of the AU Commission, Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, really made wonderful efforts in order to achieve gender parity. So we're looking good at the, in that front, on that front, and also in the panel of the wise. But of course, with governments, the picture looks different. But we've heard the good news that there might be, an, um, or there will be, uh, the first female president of Ethiopia um, soon. So um, small steps, also big steps. Also in terms of peace, and, uh, peace support missions, yeah, we follow the dismal global trend of not having enough women in these missions. Now, I know that you know that these things are not, not new, but clearly, representation has limitations because you can have women in parliaments, but they cannot protect women on the ground in the most dire conflict situations from harm. And you can train as many mediators or women mediators, female mediators as you like, if they are not politically well positioned um, on the rebel side as well as on the government side, they will not make the team. So I want to conclude then, um, Chair, by just mentioning a couple of um, issues for us to consider. Maybe we can consider that in question time. I think that we also need to make a concerted effort to do a gender analysis of the new threats emerging. The statistics will tell us that um, conflicts are down, fewer people are dying, but I think that many of the conflicts have become very protracted and the kinds of violence have become much more intense. And yeah, I'm thinking in terms of violence and uh, uh, the connection between gender and terrorism. I think that our envoy for women at peace and security needs to continue the very important work to connect the um, activists on the ground, the government officials, as well as the practitioners and the peace builders. 
we also need to go back to the original non-violent ideas related to women's movements. And I do not mean that in an essentialist way. I think it's important that we actually rediscover this notion. Why? Because when women are included at the negotiation table, and we know that the statistics don't look good, they actually, they're not necessarily more peaceful, but they actually put other issues on the table, other issues other than the high traditional security issues. And by doing that, you open up the discussion to actually get closer to the root causes and also to maybe promote more buy-in. So in that sense, I think that their role is fundament, um, fundamental. Then, almost, almost done. Um, we need to work on the inclusion of women in formal peace negotiations and also the zero tolerance policy needs to be also actively pursued. This is a difficult one for the AU to pursue if you are actually dealing with particular national governments. And then in conclusion, um, I would like to say that conflict analysis also needs more attention from a gender perspective because fundamentally, if we understand how gender norms and behaviors actually operate and how they actually serve as drivers of conflict as well as peace, then we can begin to, to develop a, a more sustainable peace. So thank you very much. Thank you, Haley. I forgot to mention that Professor Haley Houston is the current Lord uh, Archie Visiting Professor at the Nordic Africa Institute and the University of Uppsala. Thank you for that. Uh, Linnea, I will call you, call on you to take the platform. Thank you. Okay. I was expecting to go after Professor Söderbaum, so okay. I'm uh, delighted to be able to go before him for once. <laughs> uh, should add that he's a colleague of mine, former colleague from Gothenburg University, so we work together um, since before. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, honored to be here. Thank you to the organizers, thank you to the chair for giving me the word. Uh, Madame Duarte and uh, Dr. Kabaruka, uh, indeed a hard act to follow, but I will uh, make a few remarks. Uh, so I directed my remarks first uh, to the AU chairperson and reforms implementation unit, secondly to the members of the UN Security Council, and uh, thirdly with a short remark to the Swedish government. Uh, to, the, to the African Union chairperson and reforms implementation unit, I would say that um, we have a plan, and the plan, as you're saying, uh, as you're telling us this morning, is destined to, to be rolled out, to be implemented. Um, however, works, work remains to be done when it comes to uh, the communication effort and the cons consultation effort with differing uh, levels of the membership of the African Union and also of populations. Uh, so I, I, would, I would point to some remaining dividing lines on the issue of implementing reform and where levels of the membership still have some reservations from my understanding. So, Member states are seeking further clarification on, for example, the composition of the board of the AU Peace Fund. And some of them think that it should be the member states that appoint the members of this board. I'm, I'm wondering, this is the board of trustees that you also uh, mentioned. <clears throat> on the issue of bringing the African Union closer to its citizens, member states have raised uh, strong opposition, saying that 
the, the work of popularizing Agenda 2063 and the AU reform plan is within the domain of sovereign states. So how they do this, the different pathways of doing this, is something that the member states need to lead on. Uh, and it, it made me think, when I consider the implementation matrices, because there are very detailed implementation matrices that you can look at concerning both Agenda 2063 and the EU reform plan, as now endorsed. And they, um, they, they detail that they have done consultation processes with African citizenry. They have done consultation processes. And it makes me think, uh, as, as Ina was mentioning in her remarks as well, what, what was the quality, to what extent did citizens uh, become aware of what these plans entail for them and what the long-term implications are uh, for, the, for the many member states of the African Union? <clears throat> uh, okay, another dividing line, I believe, is between those who regard the African Union mainly as an intergovernmentalist organization and those who uh, put at the forefront pan-African values. So to the officials, ministers and diplomats that hold pan-African beliefs uh, first and foremost, they objected uh, not on the diagnostics, but on the way of implementing the AU reform plan. Uh, some objections were, uh, what is this doing to our values of solidarity, equity? Uh, is this reform plan reconcilable with what we believe is the Pan-African way of conducting politics on the continent. Um, also, I think, connected to the way that the implementation plan was uh, in the, in, endorsed at the retreat of, of an AU summit um, <clears throat> that had some implications for, for how the Pan-African view considered this way of working. Perhaps this was necessary, perhaps it was time, perhaps it was out of historic necessity, but nevertheless, it, it, it is still a remaining dividing line. For intergovernmentalists, uh, the African Union is a forum where member states bargain uh, and where they form interest-based coalitions. Uh, so for, for, from their perspective, if the reform plan uh, brings with it that some commissioners will lose their jobs, the commission will be leaner, meaner and more efficient, this is not a problem. But, but for those officials who have staked out influence and who now hold a power that they didn't used to hold, it will be very difficult to give up uh, that domain that they have now taken many years to, to claim. Uh, I also believe that there's a dividing line between the regional blocs that still requires some further work. Um, although we see that consultation has had effect so, for example, the SADC block of countries were initially raising some, uh, some objections on, on the process, not on the diagnostic. Again, how to fix the African Union was not really the point of disagreement, but on the process of how this should be done. But we see uh, also, due to some initial engagement work and outreach work with the SADC region of countries, that the position is now uh, more in favor of the reform plan than it, uh, than it was at the start. Do I have still a few? One, one minute, okay. So I skip the comment to the Swedish government. I go straight to the UN Security Council members. Um, <clears throat> I believe that the division of funding for security, uh, for security activities on, on the African continent 
has been set to 25-75. So to, if the African Union could raise through the, through the AUP's fund the 25% of financing security activities, the, the UN Security Council could consider financing up to 75% through the UN Assessed Contributions budget. I would say, you know, I would strongly wish to remind the UN Security Council members that this is a pragmatic and not an equitable uh, negotiation position. So it makes it possible to consider more secure, more sustainable, more predictable funding for peace and security activities on the continent. But this is not maybe the, the, the end negotiated position. Because we need to keep in mind, and through the illustrations that you were giving, giving uh, Dr. Kabaruka from Somalia, uh, that African states have raised for a long time that there is a global stability challenge, not an African stability challenge. And the issue of using UN-assessed contributions for UN-authorized but AU-mandated peace operations uh, is not necessarily just an issue of cost-sharing. It's also a much bigger political arrangement uh, and that the peace and security strategic partnership will be needed regardless of regardless of the financing, uh, financing discussions. So it's, it's important to remember that, that this is not necessarily one, the UN Security Council, for example, claiming moral high ground over the African Union. And indeed, the African Union through the A3 and, and the African UN member states will continue to push for uh, many other bigger reform issues than just this one of the financing part. They will, for example, continue to push for an African permanent member on the UN Security Council and for advancing the very important UN reform process. So we're speaking today of African Union reform, but let's not forget that there's also a very urgent need to reform the UN and the UN Security Council. So I'll stick to that. Thank you very thank much. You. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, Elia. Uh, I will call on Professor Frederick so about. I, I imagine some of our audience want to hear one or two sentences about the challenges and opportunities in the EU-Africa, you know, peace, security, cooperation, and especially the funding aspect. You have uh, the floor. Thanks for calling me. And uh, I'm very uh, grateful for being here and uh, taking part in this uh, terrific event. And uh, I wonder what on earth can I add uh, Going lost here. Uh, I think so many important stuff have uh, things have been s stated already. Um, I uh, but I will bring some uh, uh, say a few remarks about the uh, funding aspect uh, from the on the part of the donors because donors matter in here. Even if we speak about the. Uh, increasing Africa's self-funding. We, we heard from uh, Mrs. Duarte that 95% uh, of the program budget is, is uh, funded by the donors, and uh, between 60 and 90% of all AU and REX funding comes from the donor community. The donors clearly matter, and donors, uh, even if we raise African self-financing, the donor issue will not go away. It will stay there for quite some time. And here I think it's important to take into consideration that donors are not uh, neutral or passive. They are really into uh, the logics of, of these uh, and the functioning of these uh, organizations. And uh, 
I'm writing an article at the moment where I classify, uh, build up the typology of different donors. And uh, some of my colleagues got a bit upset with me when I said that uh, Sweden is uh, the good Samaritan. And uh, <laughs> that uh, is that they pay, they uh, pay a lot into uh, Agenda 2063. They uh, want to enforce uh, or build African capacity building. Uh, and uh, sort of give ownership. Well, but uh, many donors don't behave that way. Uh, they, they are quite intrusive. Uh, so therefore, we really uh, need to take into consideration all this, uh, what the donors actually do. And uh, therefore, I, I, uh, I think we live in, in exciting times in the sense that uh, I've studied uh, AU and the Rex for, uh, for uh, 25 years, and now it's uh, very intriguing times to follow these uh, processes. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, finally this issue about the donors have come to the surface, because 25 years ago we didn't discuss the role of the donors that much, perhaps a bit in the donor community, but we did not have any uh, systematic research. Therefore, I constructed a database with a, a postdoc I recruited from Berlin. And this database, we, we on all regional uh, aid, going to AUREX and, and uh, uh, regional programs. And uh, we can see that we have around 20 to 40,000 aid projects, uh, reaching around 45 billion US dollars. Much less than 10% uh, goes to AU and the Rex. Most of it goes outside the framework of the AU and the Rex. Uh, that's something to consider. Uh, so what can we learn from this research project we have had for, for uh, a few years? Well, uh, like I said, much, much of the funding goes outside the AU and the Rex. If we look at uh, the security uh, related funding, there is a very heavy concentration to the AU. It's unevenly spread. AU takes 60% of this funding, and here I do not consider the, the funding uh, uh, through uh, which is non-ODA. And that sort of uh, creates a more complex picture. The mess, there is a, clearly a mess of all the funding uh, going to the AU and the Rex and regional ODAs from various sources. So it's not that easy to get the clear picture. Uh, what we also can see is that uh, apart from uh, uh, AU, the, there is uh, ECOWAS, IGAD, uh, SADAC, and East Africa community who receives around 10% of the security-related funding uh, to, these, uh, to AU and the Rex in total. Uh, the other RECs do not receive any funding at all, almost. And uh, quite, uh, I got, uh, a friend told me he was uh, doing an evaluation for the African Development Bank of the ECAS. That's one of the RECs. And he told me this hilarious story where the, the, uh, the uh, program officer at ECAS said that, well, uh, can't you try to find us and give us some money for a capacity building program in order to handle the capacity building program of the EU? So he wanted a capacity building program to handle the capacity building program, uh, which 
sort of shows the difficulty that these RECs and re other regional organizations have to manage the donor flows coming in. SADAC, for some years ago, they said, we don't want no more funding because we cannot handle it. So one question that we certainly have to deal here with is how to deal with the weak RECs. And related to that, these, uh, some of these RECs are crucial legs in the um, formulation of the African peace and security architecture. APSA is not simply built around the AU. It depends on the RECs. But what, would, what do we do when the RECs are so uh, weak? And even that some donors, uh, like I have uh, the Brits, for instance, they used to be a strong uh, supporter of AU and the RECs. Now they are retreating. They said to me that I don't, we don't want no more, we don't want anything more to do with AU and the RECs. They are giving regional aid outside the framework of the AU and the RECs. So what to do with this? Uh, we clearly have to understand that the uh, different donors have uh, completely different strategies. Uh, EU is quite a supporter. Ge Germany is also a supporter. Both the EU and the Germans, they told me that uh, supporting AU and regionalism, that's uh, written into our DNA. However, the Brits, they uh, disappear from the AU and the RECs. Uh, and uh, then we have China and the US, and they have completely different strategies. They are not in there to primarily support Agenda, agenda 2063 and AU reform. They are there in there to support, with considerable amounts of money, uh, other interests uh, related to their more uh, uh, national interests or, or security interests around terrorism and counterinsurgencies. Uh, so I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I know by the time we open the floor for questions, some my people may ask you if Sweden is really a good Samaritan in its aid policy. Be that as it may, I think there are pointed questions to both uh, Dr. Kabaroka and uh, Madame Duarte that you may quickly want to react to from some of the interventions you want to. I just want to say this, friends. I, I didn't come here to... Reform of the international organizations is not easy. Whether it's the UN, the European Union, or the African Union. So there's nothing surprising for me that as we try to reform the African Union, you have got this internal politics uh, positioning uh, uh, with one argument or another. I had some of the arguments you mentioned. I've heard them before. I, I wish I could tell you the reality behind that rhetoric, because uh, this is not the place to do that. But I could tell you why there were some of those uh, visions, or what is evolution in some aspects. That is an internal, internal African politics. But just to give an example, because uh, you mentioned that some people say, well, the decisions were taken at a retreat. It's not true. It's a position taken by some countries because they had initial reform. What happened was, Heads of state, 
noticing that previous attempts at reforms had not been implemented. Because they always go back to subsidiary organs, the ministers, the ambassadors, and they get stuck. They decided this time they will take the decision themselves. But then the decisions went to a proper summit. I was there, where they were argued and the resolution prepared. But if someone has an issue with the content uh, for geopolitical reasons, they could advance those issues. But it's not the place I cannot tell you what some of the arguments internally. Uh, uh, what I can tell you, though, that as I speak with you, I have a feeling that uh, the momentum is on uh, to reform the union. Now, individuals are individuals. If I'm a commissioner for finance in the European Commission and my post is about to be abolished, I can't be happy. So whether you're in Brussels or Nadis, it's the same. But it's not about individuals. It's not about psychology of how they feel. It's not even about individual countries. It's about the destiny of a continent. Even in the face of the OAU, during the liberation struggle, I'm happy the ambassador of Tanzania is here. Countries like Tanzania, Zambia, Mozambique, Congo Brazzaville, Nigeria, they bore the burden for the liberation. All right? So I'm not surprised that even now there'd be some countries ahead of others in terms of supporting reform. That is completely normal. Second point I want to, to, to briefly mention here is that um, we have to be careful with this donor thing. No, Sweden for me is a good citizen. I don't know about the Samaritans. <laughs> Sweden has been a global citizen exemplary since the days of Dag Hammarskjöld. Dag Hammarskjöld died in Africa. Trying to sort out one of the first crises on the continent. Swedish soldiers died in Katanga. And Sweden has been at the forefront of anything. So it's a good global citizen. Of course, your politics are evolving. I don't know. I don't know much about politics here. Uh, but I think <coughs> we have to recognize some of the smaller countries in the global constellation, especially during the days of the Cold War, who were able to, <coughs> to move ahead and do things ahead of the curve. Uh, it's important to recognize. Having said that, having said that, it is not right. It is not right in the 21st century that every small conflict the African Union has to come to Sweden or any other country to look for support. Africans themselves have to take full responsibility for the stability of their country. It's not me saying it, it's a leader saying it. So it's not about donors. Because partly, and I will end there, sir, part of the AU's inefficiencies is a donor problem, as it was with countries. Uh, you talk about absorption capacity. I know one, for example, where uh, European Union gave us, I think, $50 million. The country was not able, able to absorb because of procurement issues. I mean, so there are conflict between fiduciary matters and the agents of the crisis. Russell was saying, look, you have to follow international competitive bidding in the middle of a crisis. Right? International competitive bidding takes six months. Something else I've found in Addis Ababa is that all these donors who give money to the African Union, each one of them has got their own accountability framework. They want their own audits. 
right? As they used to do in individual countries. And so staff of the union, the peace and security department, spend more time providing accountability for $20,000, $100,000, $500,000, instead of dealing with the big issues of peace and security. So I hope in the Board of Trustees of Peace Fund, we'll have this conversation. It can't be simply because people have money that they're right. That'll be a conversation in terms of the framework, the fiduciary issues, the accountability, so that all of us end up in a sweet spot. And I will end up by saying this, sir, that uh, without ECOWAS, without ECOWAS, the cross in the Gambia could have been bloody. Someone said, wrecks are weak. Without ECOWAS, the cross in the Gambia could have been something different. They went in, they didn't get money from donors. Senegalese, the Nigerians, they resolved it. The South Africans have been many times to Lesotho, trying to sort out their country. There have been crises where regional economic communities have actually been at the forefront, even Somalia. The first country to deploy were Ethiopia, Kenya, Burundi, the Ugandans. So they are weak, right? But they take responsibilities. So I'm hoping that all those issues you mentioned, we can discuss them in the Board of Trustees so that all of us share our responsibilities. Sorry for being uh, too long. Oh, thank you, Madam. Uh, Madam, okay. Can we All right, thank you. Thank you for very interesting presentations and really putting the A reform process. Uh, I come from Plan International, Sweden, and I'm sort of close colleagues from Save the Children. Uh, we have since 2009 been working closely together with the ACRWC uh, to further children's rights uh, within the African Union. Uh, and we do this together with a consortium, or within a consortium, with uh, three other partners, which is uh, ACPF, IHRDA, and the Doloma Institute within University of Western Cape. And the uh, work is enabled by CEDA. The Nordic Africa Institute was also involved in the initial phase in helping us to set the direction for this work. Now, uh, for us as human rights or child rights organizations, um, we think there is a great need in the A reform process for children's rights to have an equal stand to other human rights mechanisms, and not least looking at the demographics of Africa. So the question is, uh, could you give us a bit of insights into the thoughts around the child rights mechanisms in the African Union in relation to the reform process? Uh, thank you uh, very much for the panel. Yeah, Dr. Luca, you summarized um, the whole issue of the peace uh, process in our continent. Um, I would like uh, further to uh, say that the peace issue is it's an economic issue in our continent because that is related to the structure of the society and. The structure of society necessarily begins with an understanding of man's and economic being. 
economics not only refers to the production, distribution, and the exchange of goods and services, but also describes the inescapable condition of all human and that man must be in a position to live in order to be able to make it. But life involves, before everything else, as you know, eating, drinking, habitation, clothing, and many, many other things. And indeed, this is a historical fact and a fundamental condition, which is today, as thousands of years ago, must daily and hourly be fulfilled, merely in order to sustain the human life. So the issue itself of the peace should be related very much to the economic conditions and survival of the human beings in our country. This is number one. And um, to generate uh, whatever type of fund, you need also to use that type of fund in a very proper manner. And I don't want to uh, push in because there were some people say the money was not being used, mis misused. There is a lot of money coming in from the donors and of course from the continent itself. But if you start in putting in a lot of money, and then there were some soldiers, they can stay. If you give him 5,000 per month, that vision can be as long, 10 years, if he, if he get, get that money. Because in the home country, he can get for a salary of three, and not much more than five, $500. In a situation like this, he can get $5,000, and he can stay for long. So I think we, are, we have to restructure the idea of how can we put an ultimatum for, 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 for this uh, type of, um, of expenditure, for how long we give in, and then the, and peacekeeping is something else, not peacemaking. We should have to look actually for peacemaking by the end of the day, because that is a very important thing. And therefore, I think, we need actually the restructuring of the society after had been in that particular place. The after war or after conflict reconstruction is very important. And this is there, we need the international community is to come in to bridge that gap. It's a poverty issue anyway, it's a poverty issue. So if we look for peace from uh, an economic perspective and looking for uh, solutions from an economic perspective, we could reach. But if you are just trying to collect money and continue the peace missions, then it is something will be forever because uh, it will be very difficult and the donor countries will have that fatigue. They will not continue. Thank you very much. Well, I cannot give you an answer about the inner workings, and I'm not even going to try. But I can say that in my reading of Agenda 2063, um, there's been a lumping together of women and youths and young people and children. And from my own feminist perspective, I would say that that would be um, a, a sure way to actually forget about the, uh, uh, the differences between different groups and their different needs. So to have a champion for children's rights specifically and a framework for that 
um, makes good sense in terms of a human rights perspective. What is happening on the ground and in terms of the AU, I cannot give you specific details. So. No, let, let, me, let me just say the following that I think Christina will have said this morning. The reform of the AU is not simply about getting more money. It's about value for money, sustainability, fiduciary issues, and they have started very well. For the first time, this commission is beginning by having a medium-term expenditure framework where they're cutting 12% from the budget. This is much more than many international organizations I know. In past years, we'll be increasing budgets, but this time around, experts went in, right? Look at the philosophy of the budget, its structure, and they concluded that there's a lot of fat. And for the first time, the AU cut its budget. And I think they'll continue. So I think we should salute to that. Second, uh, it's about, um, how do I call it? Peacekeeping missions have many problems. Whether they are peacekeeping run by the UN, by uh, AU, or by hybrid missions, and there are many experts here who can explain value for money, humanitarian issues, but this is not our subject today. I, I can't answer uh, for that. But I think the more important issue for the Ambassador of Sudan, I think 90% of the crisis we're dealing with today in Africa arise from the destruction of Libya. Maybe Libya was not a perfect democracy, but it was bombed out of existence. So all the weapons have flown south to the Sahel, the fighters have flown south to the Sahel, okay, and the mayhem in the region. All right? So how do we handle this? Many countries in the Sahelian belt are already funding today up to 5% of GDP in defense expenditures. The typical average for a poor country would be 2.5%. But they have to increase expenditures to deal with this issue. All right? And the help from the international community is missing. International community want to bring democracy in Libya, fine. Uh, but having done what they did, they left. Now, Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso, Mali, they would pick the baby. So which brings me to the 25%, 75%. I think there is a master confusion. There will be crisis where the African Union will decide to fund it completely 100%. Because maybe the politics at the UN Security Council does not allow that to happen. There'll be missions which must be funded 100% by the UN. Because African countries are also members of the UN. I think we're the largest number in the UN. And the international community through the UN Security Council still have the responsibility to keep the peace in the world. So the 25-75% is not a sudden division of labor, a new doctrine. It is an effort by the Africans to own part of the problem, but the Security Council resolution is very clear. It will be a case-by-case -case basis. We still have to argue what will be in kind, what will be the logistics. We still have to argue whether it will be 25% or 10% or 3% or even 0%. These matters were discussed the last time in the uh, UN, and I think there'll be clarity in December just before the Security Council.
before now, there were other efforts at making things happen rightly, but they did not consider deeply the issue of budget efficiency and sustainability. And these are things that have been introduced to these new initiatives so that we can have a holistic uh, reorganization and restructuring of the processes. Here we are. I think we can give a round of applause for our panelists. Uh, <laughs> uh, on behalf of all of us, I want to say thank you to His Excellency, uh, Dr. Ronald Kaberuka, for honoring I'm, this. I'm Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, our other panelists, Heidi, Linnea, and uh, Frederick. And uh, on behalf of the organizer, my names are Victor Aditula. I am the head of research at the Nordic Africa Institute. We want to say thank you to you for your patience and for being with us. And when we call you again, we surely know that you will come. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.